Bible. We are jumping back in the Word, man. We're working through 2 Corinthians, so grab a Bible, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 today, and we're going to start moving on through it. Uh, churches tonight, not right now. This is me unpacking the Word, as you know. If you've been watching this, you've heard this before. But I want to remind you always, because uh, it's important that we gather, and we really want you to come tonight. Um, if you want to know how to find us, hit us up online. We'll tell you where we are. Uh, we're in the East Valley in Tempe, Arizona, and you are welcome to join us. You can find whatever you want in terms of social media. You can contact us through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. You can go to the website. You can email us. We would love to talk to you, tell you how to find us. Quick announcement. Uh, if you're part of our body, we are having a members meeting uh, June 6th at 5 p.m. So if you want to come early and come to that, I'll remind you, but just giving you a heads up a couple of weeks out um, before we meet and gather that night. We'll have a quick members meeting, just let you know what's up. And also that night we'll be doing a, an upper room. It's a Lord's Supper. We call it an upper room because we spend a whole evening on it. It's super cool. It's a fun time um, and it's very special. So if you've been part of it, you already know that. If you haven't, you're welcome to come be part of it. So there's that. Anyway, we've been doing this series on a cross-shaped life. So grab again your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians 3. We're going to get into it pretty good. The theme we've been using is from 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 2, and it says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So the title for this uh, particular week is A Cross-Shaped Life, and we're talking about stripping the veil. Sounds funny to say, you understand what I mean, but stripping the veil. Sometimes we're tempted to think that we have to keep the laws uh, in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, where we have to keep them, or we have to be as perfect as we can possibly be to please God. But Paul calls that being veiled. Paul would refer to that as being veiled. But by the work of the Holy Spirit, the veil is removed. It's taken away and we're able to see the grace of Jesus throughout all of his word. And by actively beholding him, by actively looking at him in his word, we begin to reflect his glory to others. All right, that's kind of where Paul's hidden today. So let me read 2 Corinthians 3 verse 12. And I'll just read a couple of verses. We'll cover some more, but I'll just read a couple of verses here. Chapter 3, verse 12. It says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. It is so awesome. I pray uh, as we look into it, as we um, behold you in your word, that your Holy Spirit would make Christ known, that we'd be able to see truth, that we'd be able to see you as we look at your word. God, I pray that if anybody today has a veil covering their eyes, a, a barrier between them and, and you, that they can't see you, take it away today, Lord. Remove it that they would hear and know and recognize who you are through your word. It's your word, not mine. And I say these things in Christ's name. Amen. So 
Uh, I was talking about this text with my discipleship group, a couple guys, we, a few guys, we all meet on Saturday mornings for breakfast and, and the Bible, and um, we're all pretty, co- not all of us, but most of us are coaches. One of the coaches is Eric Lauer, it's a great friend of mine, and he made this really cool illustration that I'm going to use because it fits perfectly. He was talking about, um, maybe you remember when you were young, you had them, but these stars that you would put on your roof in your bedroom that uh, were glow in the dark. Those things were so cool. I never had them. I had friends that had them, but they were really cool when you turned out the lights at night. Or maybe you think about a glow in the dark ball, you know, the kind of balls that, 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 you know, you hold them up to the light a while and they glow. We have a few of those. We take them to the park and play with our dogs with them after it gets dark. But whether we're talking about these stars or the balls, either way, are they actually shining? Do they actually have light? Well, yes and no. What happens if we take the ball, for instance, and we put it in a drawer and we leave it in that drawer for a couple of days and then decide to take it to the park? Is it going to shine? No. Not, not, a, not a chance. Their chemical makeup causes them to shine because they are absorbing light and then reflecting it. All right. It's not their own light. It's light that they're absorbing and they're reflecting it even in the darkest of places. In fact, uh, when they're completely full of light, that reflected light is even brighter or appears brighter in the darker places. So the darker the darkness, the brighter that light is in a reflective way anyway. But it's only for a period of time, as you well know. Eventually, it starts to fade and it starts to dim and starts to go down. Eventually, you need to take these uh, balls or stars or whatever and put them back in the light to let them absorb again more so that they can reflect. Paul describes our relationship to the glory of Christ in a similar way right here. As we behold Christ, as we look at him, we begin to absorb his glory, not to become his glory. Um, we, we don't transform into it. We don't take it away from him either, but we reflect it. It, 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 and it fades. It fades over time. And we need to continue looking at him. We need to be in his presence through his word. It's, it's something we understand because his Holy Spirit has unveiled us so that we can see him. Uh, he never leaves us. We never go totally dark. But the brightness of his reflection comes from our time spent beholding him. So just, I'm going to put these glasses down before I do something dumb with them. I tend to fidget with them. So <laughs> just as the veil here in the temple was torn in two by the crucifixion, if you know the story, the veil that covered the Holy of Holies was ripped from top to bottom at the crucifixion. In the same way, when we truly see the cross of Christ, it strips us of our veil. It tears the veil off our eyes. The blinders are gone. And then the Living the cross-shaped life that we're talking about is living an unveiled life that boldly reflects Christ to others. Okay, Uh, Outline as we walk through this really quickly. Paul speaks about the glory of God in three different ways. He talks about the greater glory, that God's glory is displayed in all of his promises and covenants. But we should probably seek the greater glory here. Um, a hidden glory because of sin our eyes are veiled um, to his glory and then seeing glory Christ is the glory of God God revealed to us when the veil is removed 
by the Holy Spirit. So let's start with the greater glory. Second Corinthians 3, let's start in verse 7. He says, now, if, and I'm going quick because we're covering a lot today, but just roll with me. You can go back and press pause on this if you want. <laughs> Slow it down. Verse 7, he says, now if the ministry of death, that's the law of Moses in, in the Old Testament, if it was carved in letters on stone and it came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, we'll come back to the glow in a minute, but note that it's the law that had the glory. He said because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, and the ministry of, hey, you're guilty of sin, then the ministry of righteousness being made right with God, it must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to no glory at all because of the glory of that what surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have Glory. So what's Paul talking about here? Well, he's contrasting the old covenant, the law of Moses, the first five books of your Bible, with the new covenant. All right, One is fading and unchanging. One is coming to an end. One is eternal. Um, the old covenant, let's start there. The old covenant was in Exodus specifically when he got it. It's a system of laws. It was given by God through Moses to guide the people towards holiness so that they could live in the land that God was giving them and reflect his glory to all nations from there. That was the point. Failure to keep the law would mean discipline and ultimately expulsion from the land, God's land, and both of those ultimately did happen. Death, by the way, FYI, death was already... Already a result of sin. Death was already a result of sin. Not breaking the law. Death was already a result of sin. The law just provided proof that they had done. That they were sinners. That's it. So the new covenant is promised in Jeremiah 31.31. It's also in Ezekiel 36.26. And it was inaugurated by Jesus the night before he went to the cross. When he was in the upper room with his what we recognize as the Lord's Supper, that's when he brought in this new covenant that was promised in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. That's in Luke 22, uh, verse 20. And it promises, the new covenant promises a new heart. Uh, one that is uh, right with God, that has God's laws written on it, that the Holy Spirit would dwell within them so that... They're led to be faithful from within. They're led to be faithful. And they become a direct reflection of his glory wherever they go. So that, that's the two that he's talking about. And with this new covenant, he's saying the old covenant has passed away. The glory has faded from the old covenant because of the beautiful glory of the new covenant. And it's not the Old Testament, by the way. The old covenant, not the Old Testament, First five books of the Bible is the, uh, the uh, covenant of Moses. In fact, Moses doesn't even himself appear until Exodus. So the, all of this word is the word of God. 
So let's not confuse that, all right? It's the Old Covenant, not the Old Testament that was being passed away. So regardless of which covenant you're considering, whether it be that one that we're speaking of as old, that was the law of Moses and whatnot, whether you're talking about that or the new covenant, salvation either way comes from grace alone. That's it. Because all are lawbreakers and sinners already. We're already facing death as sinners. We don't start neutral and then decide to keep the law or break it. We start as those who have broken the law. We already start there. So we're only saved by grace. The law itself pointed towards salvation. It was pointing to the promise of God for sinners. But it did that by identifying them as those sinners who needed salvation. Those who recognize themselves in that way would find themselves hopeless. They would find themselves fully dependent on God's grace alone for salvation. And hoping by faith that God would provide atonement, that God would grant forgiveness, that God would, would even though they die, that God would give grant resurrection. And that is exactly what Christ accomplished on the cross, through the cross. So the Spirit of God is what makes the difference here between those who see themselves as hopeless and need a Savior, those who look at the law, the Old Covenant, and see themselves as hopelessly needing a Savior, or those whose hope is in the law itself, in the idea that if their ability to be good enough to obey is going to satisfy um, the requirements of the law itself that the law itself by their quote obedience to it will be enough to provide for their salvation so think about it he calls the ministry of death here is the term he uses for the law or the old covenant he's calling it a couple things ministry of condemnation ministry of death though but he calls it glory glorious he says it, it, it caused moses face to be filled with glory how is the ministry of death Glorious. Well, it reveals who God is, for one, and it reveals who we are, which is more important. And he contrasts it with the ministry of righteousness. The ministry of righteousness gives us righteousness, right with God. It makes us right with God to sinners who have no righteousness of their own. Which is evident from the law. It's for those who would recognize when they look at that old covenant law that there's nothing right in me. And that the ministry of righteousness grants me that righteousness. That is life. Life. Philippians 3, Paul wrote in verse 9, being found in him, in Christ. Talking about himself, being found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on him. The law points out our sin, guys, so that we may know that we are sinners and in need of grace and salvation from God. It should point us towards Jesus when we read the Old Covenant. But instead, it points many, if not most people, towards legalism. Trying to earn God's favor by doing or abstaining. But this is Paul's point. In the Old Covenant, there were tablets that were presented here. 
All right. And they had the laws of God on them and they have glory. They do. They have glory because they're given by God to be a minister to our hearts. Okay. But the heart is on the inside. And so the new covenant has greater glory because our hearts themselves become the minister. It's not about what's on the outside ministering in. The inside becomes the minister out. Jesus, as God himself, uh, or excuse me, just as God himself wrote these tablets. God did it with his own hand. You'll see this in a minute. We can't engrave our own heart either. Only God can do that. It's not by deeds. It's but Grace, 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 but for the grace of God. He writes on our hearts just as he wrote those laws. The tablets, they provide direction, yes, but it's the heart that decides to follow. That's why Jesus said what comes out of the heart is sin. It's not what's written on the stones that's sin here, but what's written on the stones brings death because it condemns the actions of the heart. You understand that? What's written on the stones is not sin or death itself, but what's written on the stone brings death because it condemns the actions of the heart. Paul explains it this way in Romans 7. I'm going to cover this. You can go back and look at it deeper in your own time, but Paul says it like this. What do we say then? Verse 7 of Romans 7. That the law is sin, that it's bad, that it's wicked, that it's evil. No means. And if it hadn't been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, don't covet. Until somebody told him he was breaking the law, he didn't know that there was a law. Is what he's saying. So the law is holy in verse 12. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It points out my sin. Verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? So did it cause me, did, did it actually cause me to die? By no means. It was the sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. So I would know I'm sinning. Verse 19, for I do not do, uh, he says, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. Sadly, it's encouraging to me that Paul still wrestled with sin. Verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's talking about how the law is good. The old covenant was good, not because it saved us, but because it pointed out that we needed to be saved. Paul then goes on in chapter 8 to break down the same thing he's talking about here in 2 Corinthians again. You can read this deeper in your own time, but on a surface level, let's look at it. Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now, right now, at this moment, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Jesus from the law of sin and death. Same thing, he's comparing two different laws, two different covenants here. The spirit of life and sin and death. For God has done what the law, the old covenant, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Our flesh could not be obedient to the law because our flesh desires to sin. He says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, 
Jesus came as a man, just like us, for the purpose of dealing with sin. Through that, God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the Spirit now leads us and guides us, and because of that, we are made right with God, and we seek to fulfill His law, not based on our merit and our deeds, but based on what Christ has done. So what are you saying? The new covenant has greater glory. It has greater glory because it comes with greater hope, with greater security, because it comes from the presence of Jesus. And it's written on our heart. And I know I keep saying Jesus here and not spirit, even though the text uses spirit. But you'll see why. Hold on. So you have greater glory. You have hidden glory. Look what he says here in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. The Holy Spirit is in our hearts and we're very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. You're talking about fading glory again here ultimately ending back in verse 7 where i'd skipped earlier it says the ministry of death carved in letters on stone the ten commandments came with such glory that the israelites could not gaze at moses face because of its glory verse 14 but their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant the same veil remains unlifted because only through christ is it taken away Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read the first five books, the Torah, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. First, let me say this. The Old Testament is not old. I've already said it. I'll say it again. It's not old. It's the word of God, all of it. And the Jews are not cast off as enemies of God. That is not the case. They were chosen by God. It's a fact. It's in, the t- it's, in, it's in his word. They gave us our Messiah. Jesus is a Jew. Not just was a Jew, is a Jew. He is our Messiah. They gave us all of God's word, all of it. The New Testament too, it's written by Jews. They were the first church. The first church was a Jewish church. And they are still part of God's plan. It's, it's a fact. No, we shouldn't honor them above all others. But we shouldn't cast them off as blind eater. Okay? Remember, it's a Jew who's writing this. In fact, Paul also wrote in Romans 9, verse 4, They are the Israelites, and to them presently, Paul is saying, as he writes Romans, even after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he's saying this, to them belong presently the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul clearly recognized them as still loved and important. In fact, in Romans 11, just a couple of chapters later, Paul says in verse 13, Now I'm speaking to you, Gentiles, so everybody who's not a Jew, let me just tell you this. And as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, look what he says, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So even in his ministry to Gentiles, Paul's heart was for the Jews. And it was Peter, a Jewish man, who said in Acts 10, 43, to him, to Jesus, 
All the prophets, all of the Jewish prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter says the reality of all scripture is Jesus. Is Jesus. But Paul is saying here that when they, when the Jews who don't believe in Jesus, when they read the old covenant, it's veiled to them. Jesus said it like this in John five thirty nine. Jesus said to them, you search the scriptures. Look what he says, because you think that in them you have eternal life. You think that you can dig in the just because you know the word or just because you look at the word. You think that that alone gives you life. He says, but it's they that bear witness about me. All of Jesus saying all of the word talks about me. And he says, and yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You keep digging in there for it. Keep trying to obey laws. And you're missing that the laws point to me. So what's Paul referencing here about Moses' face glowing? Okay, quick history. Uh, if you go through the book of Exodus, you'll see that the people of God are led out of Egypt, out of slavery after hundreds of years. God sends Moses there and in dramatic, powerful ways sets them free. You can read the whole story. And then Moses, by the hand of God, Moses leads the people through uh, the Sinai Desert and into uh, up to a mountain, Mount Sinai, in order to see and hear from God. God speaks to the people directly from the mountain through lightning and fire and clouds, and he tells them the Ten Commandments, all of the people. This is in Exodus chapter 20. Well, they're terrified and they freak out and they ask Moses to go up and speak to God, to be an ambassador, to be a mediator between God and them. And Moses then is invited by God, so he goes up the mountain. He fasts for 40 days uh, and 40 nights. And while on the mountain, God reveals his word or his law and personally handwrites these 10 sayings that we call the Ten Commandments. On stone tablets, we don't know what kind of stone. Jewish history says it was sapphire uh, to represent heavens. But whatever kind of stone, he writes it on there. But Moses doesn't even get back down with it before the people have broken the first law that says, have no other gods before me. Because what they're doing is they are currently worshiping a cow at the foot of the mountain. Because that's what they're familiar with from the cow god worship that went on in Egypt. Moses sees this. He breaks the commandments on the ground. This is in chapter 24. It's like catching your wife cheating on you, catching her in the act and being so angry you tear your your wedding certificate in half. That's the idea here. And there's a great discipline that happens from God. Many of them die, but not all of them. Moses pleads for the people. Moses ends up building a tent of meeting, that is called, but a tent outside puts it up outside of the camp, on the edge of the camp, and so he can get away from the people. And he, and he prays and he fasts for another 40 days, meeting God in this tent of meeting and seeking atonement and forgiveness for the people. And Moses begs God to reveal himself and to show his glory. That's in Deuteronomy 9.18. Well then God invites Moses. Okay to come back up. To receive another copy of the law. And he fasts again. A third time now for 40 days. And God on the mountain. And God does show Moses his glory. But only a passing glimpse of it. 
And then God makes a covenant with them again and renews that copy of the law and gives it back to Moses to take back. That's in Exodus 33 to 34. Moses returns now from his second trip up the mountain and he serves as a priest or a mediator between God and the people to seal and maintain um, the covenant agreement between God and the people. The And then Moses continues to meet with God ongoing in that tent of meeting until they build the tabernacle, which God also told them how to do. That's in the law that he gave Moses. But the glow that Paul is referring to comes from Exodus 33 and 34. So jump in there. We'll start in verse 29 of Exodus 34. We'll just read it really quick. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai the second time, when the two tablets of the testimony in it with them in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. So Moses says, whoa, come back, come back, come back. And he talks with them. And afterward, all the people of Israel came near and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And look at verse 32. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. So notice it wasn't he didn't hide his face because they were afraid. He stopped them from running off and said, no, come here and look at this. Come here and see it. And then he veiled it afterwards, implied here because it was fading. Verse 34 says, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil. So as he goes into the tent of meeting going forward, he to meet with God, he removes the veil until he comes out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel, look what he says, would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and then Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him again. So Moses unveils his face when he's speaking with God. When he comes out, he he shows the people his face, communicates that truth from God, and then covers it. Basically, it's continuing affirmation that Moses is in the presence of God. And therefore, Moses' words were reflective of God's words. However, Moses would cover his face because it would fade. And that's Paul's point of the veil remaining. When they read God's word, they are still veiled, is what he's saying. They don't recognize his presence. If they did, they'd find themselves looking right at Jesus when they're talking to, when they're looking at his word, because that's what happened with Moses. It was Jesus that Moses was meeting with. Jesus is God. So instead of seeing the greater glory of the new covenant and the righteousness of Christ, They only see the condemnation of the old covenant and they hope they have enough righteousness in themselves to satisfy God. Paul says, we're not like Moses. But we're bold because even after speaking the word of God to the people, we have no need to veil ourselves. Because we're not waiting for the next visit with God. Jesus is within us. The Holy Spirit has sealed us. God's glory is evident in us and on us at all times. What gives a covenant glory is the presence of the one who makes the covenant. The difference here is in the ones being veiled or unveiled. 
Paul is telling the Corinthians that they've been in the presence of Jesus. They are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is within them. Moses came down with a fading fading uh, glow from glory. We're indwelt with the glow of eternal glory. This is what he's saying. And in that way, it's greater. And it doesn't need to be hidden. And that brings us to the last quick piece here of seeing glory. Hid, greater glory, hidden glory, seeing the glory. Look, look at verse 17, 2 Corinthians 3. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Jesus is Spirit here. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. By the way, this is an awesome picture here of the Holy Spirit as part of the Trinity. Jesus, the Lord, is the Spirit. Verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There's a shadow, and then there's the one who casts the shadow. There is the glow of glory, and then there is the God of glory. Jesus is God. Jesus is the glory of God. John 1, 14, it says, The word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the one. He's the Spirit. He's the God of all glory. He's the letter that we talked about last week. He's the fragrance. He's the aroma. He's the law. He's the covenants. All that, all of it reveals Jesus by the Spirit. And he says, where the Spirit is, there's freedom. Freedom in a relationship, not in religious observances. It's not bondage of do's and don'ts. It's a relationship, and there's freedom in that. Rather than start with be holy, Start with behold him. That's what he's saying here. And the result will be a transformation to holiness. It'll happen. Notice the action of transformation comes in degrees here. It's a progressive act. He says from one degree to the next. It's it's happening throughout our life and it happens to us. Look how it says there. It's not by us. It's to us. Our responsibility here is to behold him. to, To hold a gaze upon him. That's what we're supposed to do. It's like the stars on the ceiling or the ball. They, they hold, they gaze at the light, and then they hold that light. Remember, seeing, uh, seeing the glory here is related to what's written, whether it's written on your heart or whether it's written on those tablets. It's what's written is related to the glory here. The veiled and the unveiled are reading the same thing. We're reading the same word of God, whether you're veiled or you're unveiled. We're reading the same thing. It's about seeing the same Word here, but the unveiled see more than printed words. We see more than printed words with a new heart. We're seeing God through his word. When you look at his word, you see deeper. You see him. It's not just the do's and don'ts of his word that you get hung up on. You see him. All of it points to him from the beginning. In Genesis 3, he's the seed of woman. In Leviticus 6, he's the lamb and the scapegoat. In Judges, he's the just judge. Throughout the books of Kings, he's the righteous ruler. In Isaiah 53, he's the suffering servant who atones for sin. I can go on and on. Jesus said himself in Luke 24, verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And in verse 44, he says, 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It's all about him. You find yourself looking at Jesus when you look in his word. And the more we behold him through his word, the more we glow in a sense as we are being transformed by his Holy Spirit into his image. If you're a believer, let me close with this. I want to read this quickly to you. It's a quote from Norman Doughty from the Green Letters, and it's awesome. He says this. If I'm to be like him, then God in his grace must do it. And the sooner I come to recognize it, the sooner I will be delivered from one form of bondage. Throw down every endeavor and say, I cannot do it. The more I try, the farther I get from his likeness. What do I do? Ah, The Holy Spirit says, you cannot do it. Just withdraw. Come out of it. You've been in the arena. You've been endeavoring. You're a failure. Come out and sit down. And as you sit there, behold him. Look at him. Don't try to be like him. Just look at him. Just be occupied with him. Forget about trying to be like him. Instead of letting that fill your mind and your heart, let him fill it. Just behold him. Look upon him through the word. Come to the word for one purpose, and that's to meet the Lord. Not to get your mind crammed full of things about the sacred word, but come to it to meet the Lord. Make it to be a medium, not of biblical scholarship, but of fellowship with Christ. Behold the Lord. Amen. I love that. Look, if you don't know Jesus, I got good news for you, though. All of Scripture paints a picture of grace for the fallen. From Genesis chapter 3, when he said, The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Death entered the world because of sin. Romans 3, 23, Psalm chapter 14 talks about how all have sinned, all have fallen short. As a result of that, we all have sinned, no doubt. Romans six twenty three says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Ezekiel thirty three eleven, God says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they would turn to him and be saved. Isaiah forty five twenty two, he says, turn to me and be saved. John three sixteen, he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Romans ten thirteen says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans ten nine says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. First Corinthians five twenty one says that he who knew no sin became sin, so that we become the righteousness of God. And Philippians three nineteen says three nine says our righteousness is not found in our ability to keep a law, but is found in our faith. From God. Only in Christianity is there a relationship. Not a religion. Rather than us trying to climb to heaven. Hoping we've done enough. He says. I'll come to you. And he did. At the cost of a cross. If you don't know him today. Confess your sin. Just tell him you are a sinner. You don't got to name them all off. Just say you are a sinner. And Put your life in his hands. Jesus, forgive me. My life is yours. Show me who you are through your word. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Tell him today however you want. And then holler at us and let us know. We want to pray for you. God, I love you. Your word is amazing. You are amazing. 
Thank you for it, and thank you for loving us. I pray you would save people today by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.